Recently, while I was in Brisbane, I was lucky enough to participate in an event hosted by THT Plus Scale Up members Philips, where they launched their 2023 Future Health Index report at the University of Queensland. During the event, I also got to host a panel conversation featuring Jane Barclay from The Martyr, General Practitioner Dr. Steve Hambleton from the ADHA, and Cardiologist Dr. Rolf Gomes in a discussion about the maldistribution of the healthcare workforce. And I'm excited to share that conversation with you on the podcast today. To learn more about Philips and download the Future Health Index report, check out the comments below or show notes of this episode on your favorite podcast player or via the Philips directory listing on the Talking Health Tech website. Right now, here's the conversation from that event. Collaboration starts with the conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. This is Talking Health Tech with me, Peter Birch featuring content and community about technology in healthcare. Between now and the end of June, we're conducting the 2024 Talking Health Tech audience survey. This helps us prioritize content, hone in key messages, and refine the show to make it even better. We also want to understand who the biggest cohorts of our audience are. So I'd love for you to take five or ten minutes to have your say and complete the survey. Everyone who completes it goes in the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of THT Plus membership credits to put towards a membership for yourself as an individual or to help get the word out about your company. The link to complete the survey is in the show notes of this episode or just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey. How are we going? How are we? Hello. What's cool is that we've got... Lots of people here live, and I was looking on LinkedIn Live as well. We've got hundreds that are watching from here in Australia and around the world as well. So shout out to those on LinkedIn. We can see the comments coming through. Ask those questions. Keep those coming through. I saw representation from GPs on the Gold Coast and across Asia and India and all around the world. So put those questions and then shout live now. So I'm going to introduce the panelists for this conversation today. By the way, for those that don't know me, who's this dude that's come up and talked about what's happening here? I'm Peter Birch. I'm the host of the Talking Health Tech podcast, uh, which is available on any podcast player or on YouTube, which you can subscribe to at any time. Uh, and also, uh, but I'll be more importantly moderating a panel conversation that we'll be having today, and I'll introduce those panelists to you now. So firstly, and uh, for each one I introduce, they'll come up and we'll applaud for them for coming up onto the stage. So Jane Barclay is the first one. She's uh, a health informatics leader whose experience crosses the private and public sectors, and she believes in balancing those clinical and technical skills to maximize health technologies in acute settings, but also is not a big fan of innovation for innovation's sake. Please welcome Jane. Next, we have an engineer turned cardiologist, Dr. Rolf Gomes, and he launched the mobile medical service Heart of Australia in 2014 to address health inequities in rural and regional communities. So since then, get this, Heart of Australia has seen more than 15,000 patients, saved 600 lives, not to mention saving patients more than 34 million kilometers in travel to get the care they need. Please welcome Dr. Gomes. Last but not least, GP and former state and federal president of the Australian Medical Association, Dr. Steve Hambleton. He's the chief clinical advisor for the Australian Digital Health Agency. Over his career, he served on and he's led health institutions and was instrumental for setting the vision for the federal government's long-term national health plan. 
He's got a lot of letters at the end of his name and does a lot of cool things, Dr. Steve Hamilton. So in this panel conversation today, we're talking about the maldistribution of the healthcare workforce. And so what do I mean by that? When I think about here in Australia and around the world, it's, you know, we, we talk often about the, the pressure that's on healthcare providers due to staff burnout or the need for upskilling. Here in Australia, though, we train doctors at one of the highest rates around the world. But at the same time, we know that we, we don't put those clinicians in the places that we need them most. So we've got where in Australia, geographically, it's really big. We've got healthcare that needs to be delivered in parts that the clinicians aren't. In other parts of, of Australia, we've got a lot more clinicians than we need. I think about, I might butcher this stat though, but you, know, you think about the, the, the planet Earth, we have something like 71% of the Earth's surface is water, but we can only drink like 1% of it. So that's not the exact kind of correlation. But if you think about, we've got a good amount of clinicians, but not in the areas that we need. So um, I, I would go to our panel here and start this conversation and perhaps to you, Jane, and think about part of addressing this might be trying to attract some of those clinicians to work in, work in some of those areas we need the most. How, how could we, in Australia, attract providers to areas where we need the most? Yeah, it's a, a really great question, Peter. And I grew up in regional uh, Queensland, up in Rockhampton, and obviously uh, live in Brisbane at the moment. Lucky enough to work for the Mater, where we've got hospitals all up the east coast of Queensland, all the way up to Townsville. Um, and it's no surprise that even though we do have a really strong medical uh, training and, and workforce coming through, the majority of those specialists in particular are located in metro areas. One of the really nice projects that we've done at MARTA over the last 12 months is stand up a remote teleneonatology service. So we have a world-class neonatology team that are located in Brisbane. How do we extend that service or those capabilities to our hospitals that are up the, the coast and into our regional team? So through the help of some really clever tech and a, a great multidisciplinary team, we've been able to set up a, uh, a service where our regional teams can, at an instant and a button, reach out to our neonatology team in Brisbane and virtually connect and with the technology feel like they're part of that one team there. So I think uh, we're learning a lot from that program at the moment and how we can use that in other models and, and to build up those services. I think the other piece that's really digitally enabled is looking at the Uber-style models of healthcare as well, where you sort of are able to pool resources of a specialist and you look at models such as CubCare or My Emergency Doctor, where you can utilise that and either provide that service directly to organisations that have a shortfall or don't have easy access to those type of specialists or even direct to consumer. And I think we're going to see a lot more partnerships and uh, melding of those types of business models and technologies to really extend those. And then in, in hopefully it, in some cases, it might not matter where you're located. So you might be uh, located in, in Longreach and you might have a, a specialty care and you might be able to provide services to Adelaide, for example, with these technologies and new models of care. So there's lots of really exciting uh, things that I think we're able to leverage and, and build on. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm going to go to both. Uh, Rolf and Steve for a second for their inputs, but I remind those that are watching live here and, and also uh, on LinkedIn to put your questions in the chat for the uh, attendees here and I'll jump to those in a second. I already see some great ones from Masood and others that have, that have put them there. Uh, Rolf, from your perspective on this point, I'd love to hear from your thoughts. Um, 
In terms of regional healthcare, when I looked at how we deliver regional specialists across Australia, Australia is a big country and we talk about the tyranny of distance and to some extent phrases like that, they romanticise the situation. And I thought, well, we can't really approach a big nationwide problem of geographical isolation in a piecemeal way. And what I thought was there was no recognised brand or focus or organisation which really delivered specialists out into the bush as, say, uh, you might look at the flying doctors and say, we have a recognised body which does emergency retrieval. So Heart of Australia was really trying to create the land-based version of a, a national program which has transformed into essentially an engagement platform where specialists now, which are growing and growing, can plug and play into an organisational structure which exists. So if you're a busy specialist and you're thinking, well, you know, I'd love to do it, but I can't book a flight or accommodation. Who's going to pick me up from the airport? Who's going to organise the patients? We remove the logistical barrier and no one likes to do things on, on their own. So if you're thinking, look, am I signing up to be the cardiologist in Biloela for the next 15 years? What if my life circumstances change? Now we, they say, oh, I'd like to be a part of Heart of Australia. And they look after the long-term sustainability of that program. So having an organisation framework, which is now transformed into an engagement platform is great. Being an ex-engineer, I like practical solutions and really the reliance on diagnostic tools in the, in the practice of modern medicine is huge. You know, you're no longer carrying a bag with a jab of penicillin and a stethoscope and a blood pressure cuff. You know, if you've got pain in your chest, most of the time you're an intermediate risk group and you need to have a stress test, which involves a treadmill, maybe an ultrasound machine. And uh, you can't fit that in a suitcase or a plane. So why not the back of a truck? And I'll give you an example. At one stage in the early days, the truck was traveling to 12 remote communities across Queensland. And the bread and butter what a cardiologist like myself deals with is people with chest pain. And most of the time that involves a stress test on a treadmill. And there was only one town, which was Roma, which had a basic stress testing service. Stress testing was invented in the 1950s. So when journalists pointed a microphone in my face and said, tell us about the high tech state of the art services you're bringing out in your truck. I was, look, I'm just trying to restore some basic level of equity here in bread and butter services, you know. And if you look at, you know, in, in 2011, I read a paper called Health Outside Our Major Cities. And it said, if you lived out in the bush, you're 44% more likely to die of a heart attack. And I thought, well, why is that? And, and the fear is that as medical technology advances at such a rapid pace, which it is, as people in the city get access to more and people in the country get left behind, the access gap widens and so will the outcome gaps. So how do we try and at least maintain those lines in parallel and hopefully bring them closer together? And, you know, that's my, my passion to get services out at the coalface. Uh, looking at uh, things often de develop in parallel. Back then it was the miniaturization of technology, internet speeds, um, online patient records, even in transport, air ride suspension, all of these things, they coalesce into a solution which ended up being hard for Australia. So Yeah, wow. No, I love that. And back to that point that you mentioned before too about it's not necessarily clinicians that aren't willing to go out to these locations, you know, as you mentioned before, it's perhaps all of the logistical stuff and the support and being part of a community too. Steve, from your perspective in the work that you do was as well in, on this point of the maldistribution, where have you seen it? 
Uh, look, once again, this is a, uh, a complicated problem, and I think uh, you know Rolf's first sentence encapsulated it. It's really not about building another silo or solving a little problem. It's really the challenge is to step back and have a look at the system and see if the system is right. Now, we heard earlier about the training. Are we training the right people with the right skills? Does the system that we have lead itself to equitable distribution? Um, do we get enough GPs from our graduating class versus specialists? What are the structural impediments for that? What about the, um, the digital supports? You know, we've, we can now do remote care. We can do home monitoring. One of the workforces in terms of uh, are we training the right skill sets that we don't use is the patient themselves. Mm. You know, if we could empower the patients, if we could give them the information, if we could give them the tools to be able to look after themselves better, could we improve the equity? Are we investing the right funds in the right areas? We talk about rural, and I think rural is a huge problem, but there are areas of every town, and we all know the areas where there's high needs and low numbers of providers. We can actually measure that now. Why aren't we investing dollars where the need is? And our, we'll come back to payment structures. Our payment structures support that maldistribution, both of specialty and location, and some of those need to be solved. In terms of workforce, if we keep doing what we're doing, if we do exactly what we're doing, even if we make it easier, faster, better with digital, we're going to run out of people. If we, if we just mechanise paper or we make what we're doing more efficient, we'll delay the outcome, but we'll get the same outcome. We need to re-engineer. We need to get in that helicopter, get above the health system and say, what are the frameworks that we need to change? The right solution needs to be the easiest path if we get the framework right. And that's a little bit of the work that the government's been trying to do in terms of health reform. Yeah. Our payment structures work against us. They're in conflict with the model of care. No longitudinal, connected care, collaborating with allied health professionals in primary care, doing health reform, health promotion, rather than sick care, which is what we do today. So just have a think about that. Today we have a sick care system you have to get sick to get into the system. So why aren't we running a healthcare system where we reach out to people who are not yet sick and try to help them stay well? Mm. And we all focus, we always focus on the high costs, high needs areas of the hospitals. And we've got a huge one just around the corner. But why can't we use the whole thing as a system? And we use those words, even the survey used the words, health system. Mm, okay, that's probably a, a goal, not a reality. And we have a whole lot of silos that we're connecting up and we're doing a pretty good job today of connecting it up with information, but we have to do better. We do need a system. We need to refocus what we do. We need to support individuals and consumers to be activated, look after themselves and their families. We've got to give them the tools to do it. We've got to understand the needs and the location of those needs and invest accordingly. And that will start to redistribute the workforce to where the the dollars are going and the need is because they need to match and it doesn't today. Lots of things digital have changed. Anywhere in this country, there's low earth orbit satellites that you can connect to and get data. Skymuster was our, was our NBN. That's pretty good in most areas. And if, you, if we had Skymuster here, they'd tell you that it's, the data's free during the day. But if, you watch, um, if you watch streaming services, bad luck. But everything else is free during the day to actually help those businesses and those, that health care, and that's making a big difference. Yeah. So we can deliver it remotely. We do need people out there, and we need to connect them up better 
we need to ask ourselves, are we doing what we need to do or can we delegate some of that to other parts, other members of the health, healthcare mm -hmm. system and still connect it up with the information so we all know what's going on. The Talking Health Tech podcast has evolved a lot over the years, all based on audience feedback. Now I need your help, yes you, to shape the future of this show. Between now and the end of June, we're running our biggest campaign to date in order to understand what makes the global healthcare ecosystem tick. Last time we ran our Talking Health Tech audience survey, we learnt 40% of our audience are clinicians, 77% of our audience tune in for professional development and market awareness, 8% of people listen to Talking Health Tech for competitor profiling, and only 2% of people listen to the podcast to fall asleep. And this time around... I can't wait to find out about your preferences for audio versus video content, which topics we should dive into more, preferences for hosts and formats and geographical reach and so much more. And don't worry, we'll be sharing all the insights once all the responses are collected as well. So if you're a supporter of Talking Health Tech and you can spare five or ten minutes, please complete our 2024 audience survey. And to say thanks for your input, everyone who completes the survey goes into the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of credits towards THT Plus membership. Go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey or the links in the show notes of this episode as well. Such a great summary that resonates with me and well put in terms of when it comes to the workforce side, we need the, the, the system and the structure and the funding to support that. And to your point around if we keep doing it the way we always do it, there's no point just continue to doing it more efficiently. If, if I shift gears and think about technology for a second, though, I, I guess in that similar theme where, you know, it, it was mentioned in the report, as Matt mentioned during the keynote, that when we talk about artificial intelligence, everyone globally is talking about how, you know, we'll see transformational change in how everything is done through, through the use of AI. But in Australia, healthcare investment in AI is lower than the global average and that only 63% of local leaders want to invest in AI in healthcare over the next three years. So, so I guess to each of the panellists then, Jane, why do you think that other countries might be more bullish about AI compared to Australia? Or where, where might the challenges be for like a more universal uptake of AI in healthcare? Yeah. And I think it really uh, depends on how we measure what AI is. It's been around for a long time and I know my background's in, in radiology and at least for 20 years I've been working in AI uh, decision support systems in that and particularly around decision support and algorithms that are built on probability. So that's actually been around for a while and you wouldn't necessarily say that I'm going out to buy an AI system. So I think languages is key, but with generative AI, which is kind of the, the new generation and particularly the consumer-focused generative AI that's coming out, I think there's a lot of promise in the way that we can maybe pick up some bits and pieces, but the real challenge there is a lot of those consumer-grade available uh, technologies that are out there have been built off websites, Reddit and, and news.com type things and, and not necessarily clinically validated data. So it's really difficult for us to really at this point, I think, ascertain what is right and what is wrong for us to use in our day-to-day -day lives. But I think we will start to pick off the good bits of it and align it with things like how can we use it for administrative efficiencies or other cumbersome sort of tasks 
I don't think we will see it, the large language models in some other areas for a while until we start to build up some really trusted databases that we can be really, I guess, reliant on because as with a lot of our digital bits and pieces, the data you're putting in is as good as the output that you get. And I think in Australia, we've still got a lot of maturity to really get that, that high quality data in so we mm. can get a really great product out. Mm. That point that you said around trust came up in the um, in Matt's keynote too in, in the mm. report too. I think that's really important. Rolf, what about yourself? I think Jane's correct. I mean, what, what do you actually mean by AI? Is it data crunching and data analysis or is it data and decision making? If you look at, say, someone's pathology report, there's so much data in someone's pathology biochemistry report that AI could look at cumulative data sets of a patient's pathology and pick up trends before, you know, even the, the, the most attuned clinician could. So that can certainly improve the quality of healthcare and the, the man management of the patient. If we're talking about AI in the context of decision-making beyond data analysis, then I think uh, I agree with you. There's a little bit more uh, learning and testing to be done there. But I certainly think, you know, in, in medicine, there's not a lot of science to a lot of things we do. And, you know, I saw a lot of patients today. Some of them I said, I'll see you in six months. Some of them I said, I'll see you in 12 months. Why not three months? Why not eight months? Why not 14 months? You know, these are all sort of arbitrary things we do in practice. Whereas maybe I could, could have seen everyone in 12 months and with sufficient data about how they were faring, the blood pressure, weight, cholesterol, I could say, look, you know, I'll let you know if I need to see you earlier. Mm. So again, where we've got limited resources in terms of clinicians, how do we use the technology to provide sophistication into how we manage patients? Like we all have our cars serviced once a year, but occasionally you'd be driving along and it might say your brake pads are low or you need to put oil in the engine and you say, oh, well, I better attend to that. Mm. So again... You know, how do we get that real-time monitoring in health and integrate it into a more sophisticated, efficient uh, health system which, uh, yeah. which provides better medicine? It's, I think it's interesting, interesting space, but I've always said, you know, when it comes to uh, technology, resistance is futile. <laughs> uh, the, quicker you, <laughs> the quicker you accept yeah. that, the happier <laughs> you'll be. I like that line that you said too, that, you know, in, in medicine, there's not a great deal of science that we do. There's, there's that human to human element that, that's probably very important that I imagine as well, Steve, in your, in your GP work, that, that would be really important. Well, it is. And uh, we know that that longitudinal personal relationship with a, with a primary care provider, with your family doctor, your GP saves lives. Mm. And we've, there's oodles of evidence over decades now that says the more GPs per head of population, the better the population's health is going to be. And the reverse is true. The more specialists per head of population, sorry guys, the worse the outcomes. Because if you subspecialize, you're providing care, but are you caring for the patient? Now, coming back to the, to the, to the AI question, we heard the word trust. And I think that is absolutely real. Uh, do we trust these systems? Does the public trust these systems? Can they be trusted? And I think that uh, trust is changing. Trust is, e is hard to gain, easy to lose. And we've seen data hacks that make us very nervous. Mm. But we had the pandemic and that changed the level of trust. All of a sudden there was a surge in people who were interested in their digital health record. They could get their COVID results on their phone. 
to get information they couldn't actually otherwise get. Governments have actually seen that trust build. And we saw some very interesting statistics. You know, when you look at how long did it take ChatGPT, large language model, to get to a million users? It took five days. How long did it take threads to get a million users? 18 hours. But anyway, it took five days to get a million people to, to have a look at ChatGPT. And now all of the major providers have got their own large language model, BARD and you know, whatever else they call the others. But we're not going to trust those to look at our health data at the moment. And they look, there's so many of them being developed and they're so easy to develop. It's a bit like our, our genome. And we have, we're not going to talk about uh, genomic medicine, precision medicine too much tonight. But that was all we were talking about a little while ago. Now we're talking about artificial intelligence, machine learning for good reasons. And we're, all, we're going to start talking about uh, data that we can look across the patient journey because it's going to be interoperable, because we're using the same codes. And we are just not going to be able to gather that information and look for the patterns uh, that might help us focus our, the needs for that particular individual to deliver that personalised care. But with the computer systems, we probably will. A few years ago, we heard that radiologists are going to be out of a job. Well, it turns out they're not going to be out of a job. But I think the throwaway line now is that the radiologist that uses the artificial intelligence, machine learning, clinical decision support will replace the ones that don't. So we're going to need that support to help us to focus. You know, a decent high-resolution CT scan, we all know, is a thousand images. Which one do you want me to look at to find the problem? Well, actually, if the AI said, here's the arrow, you might want to check here, it's going to make it a lot easier. In terms of comparing us internationally, you're right. We are not investing as much as some other places. Perhaps our level of trust, our level of risk is a little lower. But I think if you look at us versus the UK, perhaps that's not a good example given what we saw in the, on the graph earlier tonight, <coughs> or the US, uh, we're behind them, but we, we don't have that level of trust to allow that to happen. Mm. But if I could give you an enterprise level large language model, i.e. it just works at the PA hospital. It's not gonna share information with some of the, the big players. It's all locked in. Yeah. It doesn't get outside unless, as the, as the uh, patient, you want it to. Then we might see the trust levels in clinicians start to grow. And that's a real opportunity. That those enterprise-level AI models, and in Queensland, enterprise-level AI might be the whole state because we've got one system for all our public hospitals. Now, I've got to remind everybody that general practice does exist, and so does private specialty yeah. practice. So. We need to think about the whole health system, stay in that helicopter, but we don't invest in the AI probably enough. But I think once we start to get these cheaper, more efficient enterprise level solutions that help clinicians make better decisions for the benefit of the patient, I think they'll be adopted more quickly. Yeah, you think that's right too, in terms of, you know, by having it more accessible, more, more used by clinicians and understood and trusted, then we'll, we'll see that utilization. I think over time, I look forward to shout out to people watching this in 2073 saying, isn't that cute how they were talking about AI like this? Uh, because I think as, as clinicians get to use the systems more and that trust is built in and the, and the qualities there, then that's going to be really um, cool to see. I'm looking over at the chat here too. I see some great questions that have come up from participants and I'm not sure we'll have time to get through all of them, but thank you. Keep putting those questions in. I see Masood put something up quite early. He said uh, on this point around AI, every, every corporation wants to invest in AI. Question is, what, what new skills do we need to learn? So 
I guess, you know, if we're, if we're taking that next step of, okay, well, we need to train up in AI, what, what can we ask people to learn when they like, is it just get in and use the tools? What's, what are people, clinicians' thoughts? I think um, hands-on experience is really important and we see that not only with AI but any of our digital tools. That's something that's really important for any, any of the implementations um, that I do. We're lucky enough to have a large of um, educators in our organisation who run really great simulation labs and we utilise that a lot so people are getting hands-on experience and, and playing with these tools. I think also just the intuitive design. I, I know there's a, a lot of vendors out there that, that spruik at the moment that if you actually have to train to use their product, then they want to throw the product out. It's not good enough. You need to be able to pick, pick it up. So that's an interesting one. But with regards to your chat GPs and bits and pieces like that, really understanding how they work and the ways to prompt it and asking the right questions in the right way. I think that's really important. We're probably going to see a lot more of, of that when we're starting to introduce a lot of these AI tools into our clinical practice. I think it's interesting. I mean, it's human nature that we're more forgiving of human error than machine error. That's the reality. We sort of accept human beings make mistakes. So I think ultimately it would be facing the reality that and a fair head-to-head -head comparison, where's the performance better? And again, being accepting that human beings make errors just as commonly as, probably more commonly than, than machines in, in a lot of instances. But it's that, again, it's that trust, you know, I mean, medicine is a very human-driven endeavor. It's not even sort of in interacting with technology. It's not like internet poker. It's a lot more personal than that. You know, you, people will trust their doctor and they'll say, if you think I, I need this operation, I'll trust you and subject themselves to a 2 or 3% risk of dying on the table. The, the amount of trust in a medical consultation is enormous. When we're sort of looking at whether they can transfer their trust to machine learning to deliver them a recommendation for a treatment, well, and, but on that point, Rolf, so I'd argue that in some communities, in some areas, in some demographics, it might actually be the other way around. There's some parts, even in Australia, where their trust might be more in the technologies or the, techn the, the tools they use to access communities. Either might have seen a clinician, but then would trust more the feedback that comes through on a Facebook group or the, and that those that are in a, and we can all go, oh, you know, but then the, it's people just like me. And I've just seen a clinician who's busy and probably didn't pay too much attention. And while we've got some really caring clinicians that are up here and clinicians get put on pressure, who, who knows? So I think there's, we're, we're at this interesting point. I wanted to bring that, tie that into another question and point that, that Alexandra raised too, because I want to make sure we get through as many questions as we can here, which was how can we make sure that this shift to new models of care and technology delivery doesn't exacerbate health outcome inequalities, especially in regional and remote areas. I might go to Steve for, for that point. Uh, look, I, I think that's a really good question. And I think we don't want to systematically get it wrong. And uh, just on the end of that last conversation, you know, uh, we need to understand the populations that these models are trained on. And if they're not trained on the populations that we're using them on, mm -hmm. you might get it right 90, 85% of the time. But if you get it wrong 5% of the time, every time, like the systematic errors or systematic bias, we can't do that in medicine. We just can't. We can't trust that. I think inherently we need to measure what we do. We need to reflect on what we do. We need to minimise unwarranted variation in what we do. And we need to have the quality, safety and continuous improvement loop built into what we do. And we, 
we sort of try and do that, but we need to systematically do that and measure the outcomes. Uh, and I think that's, uh, we go back to uh, something I said earlier, we need, if, we, if we're properly interoperable, if we properly communicate, if we code the same way, when I say that, I don't mean sitting to one side and coding all day, that what I do should be recorded in a shareable way as a consequence of what I do. And that might be something that the, that the technical people in the audience can help me with. Recording what, in other words, making notes about what I do, converting them into SNOMED CT or Australian Medicines terminology, adding them to the record, reflecting on the outcomes that I produce, and that can drive confidence that we are delivering equitable outcomes. It can also demonstrate the inequity of location or demographic or whether you're culturally and linguistically diverse and there's an issue, whether you're um, from an Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander and you get worse outcomes, we can drive investment back into that area to actually deal with some of that inequity. So that's why we've got to build trust by demonstrating that we are delivering outcomes that we say we're delivering. And I've said to my GP colleagues many, many, many times, I would like to have our, our hospital systems invest in the community uh, to actually unload some of that demand on the hospitals. Mm. Primary care can keep people out of emergency. Yeah. Primary care can stop people from being readmitted if they are discharged after an unplanned admission. We can decrease length of stay and we can demonstrate we can do that if, you, if we Im impact the patient in appropriate ways. We've got some opportunities for questions for people who are attending live here, as well as those that are coming through on the chat too. So I'd encourage anyone here that's attending the event to raise their hand if they've got a question or a comment for the panelists here. We've still got a few minutes left for, for questions. While we do that, I, I did want to bring up one that Robert put in the chat as well, which was about how can I engage the, the healthcare academics to help? So as, as a treating clinician, how can he engage the healthcare academics that that are training clinicians in how to use different technologies. So I guess it comes to this point around bridging this gap between the, the academic side, what, what's taught and then what actually happens in, in practice. Jane, have you had any thoughts or experiences in engaging the up and comers? I think frameworks like design thinking, et cetera, are really important for us to embed in our, our students coming through. But I think more and more through your placements and things like that, we will see a lot of exposure to different technologies and I think that's the uh, probably the only benefit of having the diversity of, of digital systems in some and, and not in others across our um, ecosystem particularly in Queensland at the moment and that you'll get to see a very uh, broad range of different technologies and exposed to things that uh, work really well and, and maybe some that, that don't. I think it's a responsibility of, of not only the universities, but of all of our individual uh, medical nursing, allied health associations, et cetera, also as part of our, our professional development, because even though we've got a generation of new clinicians coming through, we have existing generations of clinicians that probably need a lot of the same um, experiences and, and training as well. I did see a question come up here. Hi, um, my name is Georgina. I'm a PhD student at the University of Queensland. I was really interested by your all of your discussion on trust with these new and innovative technologies. And I was wondering sort of what your thoughts were on sort of potentiating this literacy with not only just what these technologies are, but how we can use them. Because I think in my experience, my PhD focuses on using machine learning for diagnostics and 
literacy on when to apply the tool and what are the right questions to ask the tool to prevent you getting those sort of black box answers that may not actually be in the context of what the tool is for is so incredibly important. And I wondered if you guys had any comments on sort of how that might appear in terms of pre-existing clinicians, but also clinicians coming forward and how to teach them that literacy so that they're applying these tools correctly. I mean, I, I think we have uh, excellent training th coming through medical school, I honestly do. In medicine, we talk about things like sensitivities and specificities. We sort of acknowledge we're not in an exact science. It's not accounting, it's certainly not engineering. You know, it's, it's a semi-unexact science in what we're doing. So we look at a test and we ex accept that it's imperfect. We accept it has a sensitivity, we accept it has a specificity. I think what we've got to do is say, if we then incorporate AI into that decision-making, do we improve the sensitivity? Do we improve the specificity? And if we do, then that's the model we should follow. You know, it's not one or the other. It's if you're a radiologist looking at chest x-rays and you get AI to screen all your negatives and it finds a few positives, which then makes you reclassify, then that, that's sort of making this whole situation better. And, you know, in that sort of context, you can enhance the quality of medicine. I'll, I'll jump in because yeah. that's a really good question. And I think it comes to, to and, and Jane said it earlier, you know, if you design a product that is intuitive and easy to use, then you really solve the problem for the user. The challenge is to build in that clinical input into the product design, the product development and the product delivery. And then another, and the clinical lens over, well, what did it look like when it got into the wild? Um, you know, I've just encapsulated clinical governance. You know, so do we have good clinical governance in planning, in design, in build and delivery? And what are the things, as you asked before, are we make, making things better? Are we looking over our shoulder? What are the measurements we can do to say, this is what we thought we were going to build. This is how we built it. Did we actually deliver? And can people use it? And adding a person who works in that area as part of that design team is critical. Look, some of our, our uh, tech builders are just such smart people they build beautiful things but we've got to make sure that the users actually can use it and make sure that otherwise they won't we won't get the outcomes that we have so evaluation and reflection continuous improvement got to be built into the life cycle probably got time for one more question we can take here in the room thank you very much um, i'm a student from university of queensland also so i would like to ask about regarding so we have been mentioned report uh, repeatedly throughout the entire session that there's a gp shortage specifically general practitioner so i have looked into some data before and probably was done by <laughs> dr hamilton if i'm <laughs> assume so it says in australia we currently have a very great number of doctors very proud of that we have four doctors for paired a thousand people which is impressive, but at the same time, we have an extreme lack of general practitioners. We have 31,000 specialists across the nation, but only 30,000 GPs. And certainly we're lacking a lot of GPs in the regional area and the rural area. So I have read an article regarding there's a town in rural Queensland that have 10,000 people, but three doctors are currently available to them. So I was wondering how could this AI technology and in general the re-strategizing be potentially benefiting or at least uh, try to solve this problem? 
I think it gives us a good opportunity to then, because that's a great point that encapsulates a lot of this conversation too. I might use this as an opportunity for final thoughts for each person, perhaps 30 seconds to, to speak to that question, which covers the topic we've talked about, maybe starting with you, Jane. Yeah, I think from my perspective, not just for the GPs, but when we were talking about that health system overall and Steve, really great point about it. We, we currently have a sick system. We need to move to a, a health system. And I'm um, also a, a student, a PhD student, the, the Faculty of Medicine at UQ. And part of my uh, research is looking at how we utilise patient-generated data to actually understand what is the right care pathway for them to be on and in that utilising the right resources at the right time. And I think, I hope, in the, the next five to, to ten years, we really see a shift to more of um, utilising uh, that data to inform the right care at the right time. Thank you. And Rob? Uh, the workforce <laughs> question is interesting. In general practice, I don't know what the reason is, whether it's the remuneration, whether it's <laughs> the corporatisation of medicine, where you have large corporate GP structures and that's not an environment which is satisfying, whether it's the medico-legal aspect of uh, general practice where there's more medico-legal strain on, on the profession. Look, it's probably a, a lot of things. I'm not quite sure what it is. Certainly what you're saying about regional GPs. In the last 10 years, we've been running the specialist program. It's only in the last year I've been asked from four communities about providing general practice support. In regional areas, I am sort of drifting towards this idea of not a sustainable general practice, not a sustainable specialist service, not a sustainable health system, but how do we seed and control a sustainable micro-health ecosystem where we look at the whole health service in the community as one. You know, I'm sort of toying with that idea, workshopping it a bit in my head. Uh, you know, without a GP, the physiotherapist, the dietitian, the diabetic, BD's educator sort of is underutilised. Without the specialist support, the GP's work becomes a little bit more anxious. You know, how do we send these patients with chest pain to get sorted out? So how do we look at uh, supporting a, a micro-ecosystem of health in the community uh, as mm. opposed to just individual practitioners? And I know we're up against time, so we're going to give you two references. Uh, one is this, to the report of the Strengthening Medicare Task Force, which uh, the Minister launched uh, a couple of months ago, supported by all First Ministers of every state. Quite extraordinary. And the second uh, reference is the Primary Healthcare Reform Steering Group report, which made 10 or 12 recommendations, 60 pages. Sorry about that. For the first thing it said was one health system. It's got to feel like one health system. Digital is going to be the enabler for that one health system. We've got to have localised solutions. We've just heard one. It's a health service, not a general practice service yeah. or an allied health service. And if the NDIS pro providers there, they're part of the system. And we've got to stop with the siloed funding. And all of those reports think about the same thing. But there's some really good ideas. We're on the threshold of something new. We've got First, first Ministers and the Prime Minister all thinking about things in the same direction. It's a, we're on the threshold of doing things with digital we couldn't even dream of 10 years ago. Uh, so I'd love to be a medical student today, but um, uh, I'm looking forward to the future. I think the future is bright. What a way to wrap, but look, uh, we had, and sorry that we couldn't get to, I see other questions uh, here in the room, but also to, to Liz and Robert, to Armin, for everyone in the chat on LinkedIn as well. Please th uh, join me in thanking the panelists that are on the stage today. 
Hey, before you go, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and you enjoyed the show, write a nice review and give us five stars in your favorite podcast player. At the time of this recording, we've been stuck on 65 reviews on Apple. I'm not sure what that's about, but if this show's part of your regular routine and you've listened this far, it'd mean the world to me if you could take two minutes and write a nice review, give us five stars. It does more than just boost my ego. It also helps us climb the charts and reach more people. Thanks so much. For more content and community about technology and healthcare, visit talkinghealthtech.com. 